I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Tens of millions of people take statin-type cholesterol-lowering drugs, but some people can't tolerate statins. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. The Food and Drug Administration has approved new treatments for lowering LDL cholesterol to protect your heart. How effective are they, and what are the downsides? Today, we're happy to bring you one of the country's leading cardiology researchers. He'll describe his latest study on bempedoic acid, also known as Nexlitol. What is lipoprotein A, and why should you be tested for this important risk factor for heart disease? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, cutting-edge cardiology from a top heart doctor. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, public health experts are urging healthcare facilities not to drop masking requirements too soon. When the pandemic began, hospitals, clinics, and doctors' offices adopted universal masking as a way of slowing the spread of COVID infections. With a decline in COVID-19 cases, many people have stopped using the precautions that were in place during the height of the pandemic. But SARS-CoV-2 is still circulating, and some people are still getting very sick or dying as a result. According to the commentary in Annals of Internal Medicine, healthcare facilities serve a lot of vulnerable patients who could suffer serious consequences if infected. In addition, the return to pre-pandemic sick leave policies makes it more likely that healthcare workers will come to work with COVID-19. Maintaining masking within the facilities could help protect both patients and healthcare workers. The most common long COVID symptoms include severe fatigue, shortness of breath, cough, and brain fog. Now, researchers are reporting that people with no previous blood pressure problems are more likely to develop hypertension after an attack of COVID-19. The investigators reviewed over 45,000 medical records of patients who had COVID and nearly 14,000 records of individuals who had influenza. Six months after infection, the people who were hospitalized with COVID were more than twice as likely to have persistent high blood pressure as those who had recovered from influenza. Even people who were not hospitalized were one and a half times more likely to have lingering hypertension than those who had come down with the flu. One-fifth of the people who were hospitalized with SARS-CoV-2 developed lasting hypertension, even though their blood pressure had been normal prior to COVID. There was a time a few decades ago when doctors prescribed aspirin for people at risk of a heart attack. More recently, cardiologists have discouraged the routine use of even low-dose aspirin for prevention. A new multinational study involving more than 124,000 people in 51 countries analyzed the use of aspirin after patients suffered a heart attack. Numerous studies conducted late in the 20th century established that daily aspirin reduces the risk of a second heart attack or stroke by about 25%. Guidelines recommend aspirin for this type of secondary prevention. In addition to being effective, aspirin is affordable. 
Despite this, the study found that relatively few of the people who could benefit from aspirin therapy to prevent repeated cardiovascular events were using it. Only 17% of eligible patients in low-income countries and 24% in lower-middle-income countries were taking the drug. In wealthy countries like the U.S., nearly two-thirds of those eligible were on aspirin. These low rates have not changed in nearly 12 years since the last study showed aspirin being underutilized. Patient advocacy organizations, or PAOs, are admired for their commitment to promoting disease awareness, encouraging policymakers to support research, and working with manufacturers to improve treatments. Some examples include the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society, and the Alzheimer Association. A research letter in JAMA Internal Medicine reveals that nearly half of such organizations receive industry support from pharmaceutical or device manufacturers. In addition, three-fourths of the highest revenue PAOs had executives, board members, or senior paid staff with current or previous ties to industry. The authors call for more transparency in terms of both finances and leadership within patient advocacy organizations. A survey of a nationally representative group of specialists cast doubt on the FDA's recent approval of new drugs for Alzheimer's disease. 88% of the 214 physicians familiar with accelerated approval of aducanumab said they would not prescribe it. In addition, two-thirds of them suggested that the FDA's accelerated approval of this drug undermined their trust in other drugs the FDA has approved. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Heart disease remains our number one killer, with about 700,000 deaths annually. That seems scary, but we have made substantial progress when it comes to preventing and treating heart attacks. Cardiologists rely on statins to protect your heart, but some people have difficulty with these medications. Today, we'll be talking about new drugs and new tests. Have you ever had your lipoprotein A levels measured? Why is this little-known risk factor so important? To find out about cutting-edge cardiology, we turn to a top heart doctor. Dr. Stephen Nissen is Chief Academic Officer of the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He holds the Lewis and Patricia Dickey Chair in Cardiovascular Medicine at the Lerner School of Medicine. He's the co-author with Dr. Mark Gillenoff, Heart 411, the only guide to heart health you'll ever need. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Steve Nissen. It's great to be with you again. Oh, Dr. Nissen, it is so wonderful to speak with you. And and first of all, before we get into your recent clinical trial with Nexlatol, bempedoic acid, I've got to ask you, why is it that heart disease is still our number one killer after all these years? 
Well, I think the obesity epidemic has reversed a lot of the gains we made. You know, we learned how to control cholesterol and how to control blood pressure, but we are only just now beginning to tackle the obesity epidemic, and that set us back a long, a long distance. You know, it used to be that if somebody had a heart attack, it was like a death sentence. Nowadays, you know, people have a heart attack and they go, oh, no big deal. I got a stent. I'm back playing tennis. Everything's fine. What changed? Well, I've been old enough to remember when we put people with a heart attack in a cool, dark place and hope they didn't die. What changed is the ability to rapidly open the coronary artery, you know, with a balloon and a stent. It's the one indication that's very clear for for coronary stenting. And we can stop a heart attack in progress. That's a big advance. That is a big advance. And of course, now doctors prescribe statins to people whose cholesterol is high. We would like to talk to you about another drug that you have studied because although statins work quite well to lower cholesterol, not everybody can take a statin. You're absolutely right. We estimate 10 to 15% of people will have side effects that they consider unacceptable with statins. Usually that's muscle pain, uh, can be muscle weakness, and we try multiple statins. And people eventually will say to us, I don't want any more. I'm not going to take a statin anymore. And we need alternatives for those patients. Well, you know, one point I'd like to make in regard to that is exercise. We've heard from a lot of people who are really vigorous exercisers. They may be runners, they may love golf, they may like tennis like I do, and they say, geez, you know, I can't exercise like I used to because of the statin. And it seems like, you know, that might be a little counterproductive. So A, tell us about exercise and statins, and then tell us about the clinical trial that you performed recently. It was a huge study with a drug called bempedoic acid. Yeah, that's right. Well, you're right that exercise can be a trigger for the muscle symptoms related to statins. And there is even a little bit of evidence that maybe peak exercise performance is a bit reduced in some people who take statins. But you're right, the more you try to do, the more likely that muscle pain is to bother you. So we worked with a very small company that had developed an interesting drug called bempedoic acid. And this drug works along the same biochemical pathway as statins, but when you take the drug orally, it's inactive. It gets taken up by the liver, which is where statins and bempedoic acid both work. And bempedoic acid gets activated in the liver by an enzyme that is not present in the peripheral circulation. And so if it's inactive in the peripheral circulation, it can't cause those muscle side effects that are bothersome to some people. Well, you know, I was surprised to discover that the people taking Nexlatol, bempedoic acid, actually seem to have a little less muscle problem than the people on placebo, suggesting that this is not an issue. Well, it was certainly not an issue. There was no statistically significant difference between bempedoic acid and placebo. So it really did not cause muscle-related symptoms, which was why the drug was developed in the first place. 
Dr. Nissen, I wonder if you would sketch out for us, please, the um, trial that you completed. So what we did was we had 14,000 people. A half of them got a placebo pill, which is a sugar pill. Uh, the other half got bempedoic acid taken once a day. And we didn't know who got the placebo and who got bempedoic acid. We followed them for an average of about three and a quarter years. And at the end of that time period, we get what's known as unblinded, meaning we get to learn who got the drug and who got placebo. And we were pleased that there was a reduction in the risk of heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular death, or the need for a coronary procedure like a stent or bypass surgery. It was a modest reduction, about 13%. But some of the components were reduced by more. Heart attack was reduced 23%, and the need for a coronary stent was reduced 19%. So overall, it was a very good result. The drug did not lower cholesterol as much as statins, but it lowered it enough to make a difference for these patients. Importantly, 30% of the patients were patients that had very high risk of having a heart-related event, but had never had an event. And 70% were people that had had a previous event. So we were able to look at both populations. Well, I think that's really important because these weren't what we would normally call primary prevention. You know, otherwise normal, healthy people with just a little high cholesterol. These were people who were really at high risk for a cardiac event down the road. But Joe, it still qualifies as primary prevention if you haven't yet had cardiovascular disease. Exactly. So it does, but you know, keep in mind that uh, you know half of these patients had diabetes, which is a mm -hmm. very high risk for uh, cardiac events. So you know, you're both right. Uh, these weren't low risk primary prevention; these were high risk primary prevention patients. And tell us again the benefit, and and also, if you don't mind, add the NNT because right. our listeners have heard a lot about the number needed to treat. Yes. And how does that compare to statins? Yeah. Well, first of all, there were two things that the drug did. It lowered cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, by about 22%. But it also lowered inflammation measured by something known as high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. I suspect you've talked about that uh, on your show quite a bit. So it did two things. It was anti-inflammatory and it was cholesterol-lowering. Now, in order to prevent one event, we had to treat approximately 40 people for 3.25 years. That means that not everybody, of course, had a benefit, but it was a reasonable NNT, one that most people would say is a benefit that is worth it for most patients. And how would that compare to a statin, for example, uh, for primary prevention? Well, that's a great question. I, I think it depends on the intensity of the statin, how much risk the patients were at. It's a very nuanced uh, question. Uh, these were pretty high-risk people. If you think about you know, diabetes as a risk factor, a lot of them had hypertension. Some of them, believe it or not, in this day and age, actually smoked. And so they had a lot of high-risk features. And 
if you were to treat a lower risk group of people with either a statin or bempedoic acid, that NNT number would be quite a bit higher. Now, before Terry asks you about side effects, I need to ask you about diabetes and elevated blood glucose levels, because we have heard and we've talked to people who say, yeah, I was doing great on the statin. I didn't have any muscle pain, but boy, my blood sugar went up. Yes. It's my understanding that Nexlatol doesn't do that. That's a very good point. And yes, statins do raise blood sugar a little bit. Some people more than others. And if you're one of those people where it raises is more, then you're going to find that out. Um, but what we saw, and we are actually going to publish a scientific manuscript detailing the changes in blood sugar in these patients. But overall, if anything, there was a slight decrease in blood sugar when bempedoic acid was given to patients. So that is a difference from statins, and it's a difference that's potentially useful to some patients. Now, Dr. Nissen, I wonder if you can briefly tell us about the side effects that bempedoic acid does produce. Well, as it's a very important question, and like all drugs, this drug had, had benefits and it had risks. The two risks that were the most uh, apparent was an increase in the risk of gout of about 1% and an increased risk of gallstones. Neither of them were serious adverse effects, but if you have a gouty attack, it's certainly no fun. And so we would urge people, if you've had a history of gout, you probably are not the best candidate to take bempedoic acid. The gallstone issue, most of the gallstones were just incidentally found. They didn't cause serious trouble, but you know, gallbladder disease can be at times serious. So it's certainly something for people to be aware of. You're listening to Dr. Steve Nissen, Chief Academic Officer of the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Nissen holds the Lewis and Patricia Dickey Chair in Cardiovascular Medicine. After the break, we'll learn more about bempedoic acid and how doctors will be using it. Find out if you should be asking your cardiologist about Nexlatol. What about cholesterol-lowering drugs called PCSK9 inhibitors? What's the best goal for LDL cholesterol levels? Dr. Nissen will also share his thoughts about lifestyle approaches for heart health. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements, 
During this National Wellness Month, you can take care of your heart and brain health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for a strong heart and cognitive support. How can Cocovia be a part of your wellness habits? More information at cocovia.com. Today, we're talking about cutting-edge cardiology. What new research should you know about? If you cannot tolerate statins, would Nexlatol be a possible alternative? Why are cardiologists excited about a class of medications called PCSK9 inhibitors? What makes these heart drugs helpful for people with hard-to-control cholesterol? We'll also explore some old dietary advice in the light of new research. Which lifestyle changes will make the biggest difference to protect your heart? We're talking with Dr. Stephen Nissen. He is Chief Academic Officer of the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He holds the Lewis and Patricia Dickey Chair in Cardiovascular Medicine at the Lerner School of Medicine. Dr. Nissen, bempedoic acid, Nexlatol, it's brand new, more or less. How should clinicians think about using it? Well, actually, Terry, it's not that brand new. It was approved a few years ago, so okay. it's been around. For but, a little while, but people still don't know that much about and it. And they haven't thought about it much, but Dr. Nissen's research is going to make it far more popular. So what do you think, Dr. Nissen? How should doctors start prescribing Nexlatol, and why should patients start asking about it? You know, it's interesting. They should probably use it in a different way from the way we used it in the clinical trial. In the clinical trial, we had to demonstrate for the FDA, that bempedoic acid, when given alone, had a beneficial effect. And we were successful at doing that. But it is also available, actually at the same price, in combination with a drug known as azetamibe or Zetia. And that drug blocks the absorption of cholesterol. If you take the combination pill of azetamibe and bempedoic acid, you get anywhere between a 35 and a 40% reduction in LDL cholesterol and the bad cholesterol. And that's about the same as a 40 milligram dose of simvastatin, a widely used statin drug. That's the way the drug ought to be used because we can get a lot of cholesterol lowering without the necessity of giving a statin. So when should a patient ask his or her physician Doc, you know, I've had some muscle pain. Uh, my blood sugar's gone up. Um, I, you know, my brain's a little foggy. What else can I do? What, what's the story on Nexlatol? Well, I think you, you, you painted the picture exactly right. Um, somebody who's tried several statins and they've had whatever kind of adverse reaction that is unacceptable to them. And I think it's important that people try at least several statins before they give up because these drugs have been so well studied over so long. But if you really can't take a statin, then talk to your physician about uh, this drug, bempedoic acid, particularly in combination with azetamibe. I have people that come in my office and they say, I've had two heart attacks. My cholesterol is very high and I've tried five different statins. And every time I take these drugs within a week or two, my muscles really hurt and I just can't tolerate it. Those are great patients to consider 
pentobenzoic acid, particularly in combination with azetamide. But I think it's important that people try the conventional drugs first, the statins, because statins are widely available. They're very inexpensive. They've been studied over several decades, and they really do represent the gold standard. Let me ask you, Dr. Nissen, about an, another category of medicines that doctors use to lower cholesterol. These are, they go by the not very graceful name of PCSK9 inhibitors, and I am not going to ask you what that stands for, but these are injectable drugs. They do lower cholesterol. What should we know about them, and when are they most useful? Well, first of all, the PCSK9 inhibitors are very powerful drugs, and there are now three of them available. Uh, Two of them are what are known as monoclonal antibodies. They're injected every two weeks by the patient, self-injected with a little pen, pretty easy to take. They lower the bad cholesterol about 50%. They have been shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events like heart attack and stroke and so on. So they are definitely effective. They are often used in patients with statins who simply can't get enough cholesterol lowering from statins alone. And there is a disorder known as FH or familial hyperlipidemia, where people are genetically programmed just to make too much cholesterol. And the combination of a statin with bempedoic acid can often, for the first time in history, been able to get those patients down to safe levels of LDL cholesterol, particularly those that have had a previous event like a heart attack, a stroke, or bypass surgery, that sort of thing. They're great drugs. And there's a newer one that works by a slightly different mechanism that can be taken by injection in a physician's office just twice a year. So you take an injection, For six months, your cholesterol is reduced by 50% or even a little bit more. And then you come back in six months and you get a second shot and that lasts you another six months. And that's pretty convenient for some patients who travel and who are busy and so on. Can you tell us the names of these drugs? Yes. Uh, One is called Evolocumab or Repatha. The other is called Alarocumab or Prolulent. The third drug, the long-acting drug, is called inclisiran. And you know, I, I generally don't remember the, the brand names because good physician scientists always use the generic name. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's fine. The, these drugs, you say, lower LDL cholesterol to appropriate or safe levels. What is a safe level of LDL for someone who has cardiovascular disease? And what would be a safe level for someone like me who doesn't have cardiovascular disease? Well, it's been a moving target, and I've been involved for now 20 years in trying to identify the best uh, target levels. Uh, The American guidelines say that, uh, you know, the American guidelines are a little bit fuzzy for interesting reasons, so they don't really quite layout targets. But most people want to get patients that are considered high risk, below an LDL cholesterol of 70. The European guidelines are more aggressive, and I agree with the European guidelines. For very high risk patients, somebody's had a heart attack, 
maybe two heart attacks, maybe bypass surgery, has other risk factors like diabetes, getting below 55 milligrams per deciliter is recommended by the European guidelines. Most people who are primary prevention patients were okay with an LDL of less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. I tend to be somebody that if I can get there safely, I'm happier with getting people somewhat lower. There is powerful evidence, the strongest predictor of developing coronary heart disease is your time averaged LDL cholesterol over your lifetime. And so if you're treating somebody at age 50 that's had decades of high cholesterol, you're playing catch up. So treat early, treat aggressively, as long as you can do so without producing unacceptable adverse effects. And I think we have to balance benefit and risk here, like with all drugs. Nothing is without risk, but fortunately, we have safe ways to lower cholesterol. Now, Dr. Nissen, we talked a little earlier about nexlitol, bempedoic acid, and people who had an elevated blood glucose level. I'm wondering about these PCSK9 inhibitors. Do they lower LDL cholesterol without raising blood glucose? They do not raise blood glucose. They're neutral for blood glucose. So that's a certainly an, a potential advantage. Keep in mind that the increases in blood sugar in people taking statins are generally quite small. But occasionally you see these outliers, people that have a fairly substantial jump in blood sugar levels. And those are the people that we have concerns about looking for alternatives for those people. But for most people, it's really not a major concern. Now, you talked about um, people, otherwise healthy people, were, were looking at primary prevention. Their cholesterol's a little high, but not so high that, that it's real scary. Are there lifestyle recommendations that you can make to these people? Are there things that we should be doing in our everyday life other than take statins? I mean, we might want to take a statin as well, but what else can we do? Well, that's a great question. And lifestyle always comes first. Everybody, uh, if they can, needs to exercise. Exercise is as powerful a risk reducer as any drug we have available. It's remarkable how good the evidence is for exercise. Keeping your body weight down, you know, having a body mass index, you can go online and get a calculator. We want you want to be below 25. Uh, and that is associated with a lower risk of heart disease blood pressure control, and that can be done by salt restriction. Uh, you know, people who eat a low salt diet, so-called DASH diet, high in fruits and vegetables, low in salt or sodium can lower blood pressure as much as any single drug can do. Now, not everybody can get there with diet, but some people can. And certainly we recommend the Mediterranean diet. There's very good evidence that the Mediterranean diet, rich in olive oil, nuts, low in red meat, uh, high in fruits and vegetables, is associated with a reduced risk of heart disease. 
So we need to do all those things. And if we're still not where we need to be, then we can consider medication. Now, Dr. Nissen, I have to say that when you say olive oil, it just makes my tail wag. I love (laughs) olive oil. And that Mediterranean diet, there was a study, the PREDIMED study, a little controversial, but it did in fact demonstrate that the people who were taking olive oil actually seemed to benefit. I remember 30, 40 years ago when a lot of your colleagues were like, mmm, fat, bad, olive oil, bad, nuts, bad. And we changed that thinking quite a lot over the last 20, 30 years. Well, they were wrong. <laughs> a fat is not the enemy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, certainly uh, some saturated fat, like the fat that's on, in red meat. But, you know, there are healthy fats. And in fact, uh, high, uh, di- a diet that's high in sugar and simple carbohydrates is almost certainly worse. You know, I got the shock of my life recently. I walked in the supermarket and uh, I looked up on the shelf and it said, low-fat gummy bears. Uh, <laughs> oy, oy, oy. Gummy and I bears thought to myself, pure sugar, yeah. pure sugar. But they were certainly low fat, but they were <laughs> yes, not healthy. And, not healthy. And, and so, you know, I, I think we've got to understand that science evolves. And the idea that fat is bad for you, promoted heavily by the American Heart Association, was just wrong. And there are still people out there with these wacky diets that basically try to restrict fat to almost nothing. And they're wrong. It's not healthy. What is healthy is a good balanced diet, Mediterranean diet, lots of olive oil, nuts are good, lots of forms of fat that are good, but more importantly, a good balanced diet. And the Mediterranean diet has the best evidence to date. Dr. Nissen, I, I'm interested in your take on eggs. Uh, my father had elevated cholesterol for much of his adult life. And of course, we're talking about starting in the 1960s and 70s when they started paying attention to cholesterol. Um, He was told, avoid eggs. Don't eat eggs. So have doctors and scientists changed their take on eggs? I certainly have. I can say that I do not think that eggs are a nutrient of concern. Now, do you want to have scrambled eggs for breakfast every day? Probably not. But here's here's why. Only 15% of the cholesterol in your bloodstream comes from cholesterol that you consume in the diet. The other 85% is made by your liver. And so if you reduce cholesterol in the diet, you only make a modest change in blood cholesterol levels. That's the reason why we just got that wrong. And yes, cholesterol does go up a little bit when you eat a lot of eggs, but there are other things that are far more concerning. And eggs have a lot of other advantages. They're a good source of protein. They're not particularly high in calories. They're very nutritious. And so I tell people, you know, don't overdose on eggs, but don't 
be fearful that if you eat a few eggs every week, that's going to somehow cause you to have a heart attack. Dr. Nissen, an old colleague of yours, Dr. Eric Topol, has been a big promoter of monitoring, whether it's monitoring blood pressure, monitoring your heart, or even monitoring things like glucose. What do you think about patients keeping track of what's going on in their bodies with such devices? Well, I'm not a fan. Um, You know, it can certainly be overdone. Uh, Not all the devices that are marketed to do this are particularly accurate. And overvigilance can be as problematic as undervigilance. You know, we've learned over the years not to go looking for trouble. If you look for trouble, you're likely to find it. Now, that being said, it's reasonable to know your blood pressure. It's reasonable to know what your blood sugar is. But I don't think people need to be frenetic about doing so. And frankly, I've seen people drive themselves crazy with checking their pulse every two minutes and blood pressure and so on and so forth. I think a little prudence here is probably wise. You're listening to Dr. Steve Nissen. We think that earlier in the conversation, Dr. Nissen might have mentioned bempedoic acid when he intended to be referring to the PCSK9 inhibitors. Dr. Nissen is chief academic officer of the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He holds the Lewis and Patricia Dickey Chair in Cardiovascular Medicine at the Lerner School of Medicine, and he is the co-author with Dr. Mark Gilinoff of Heart 411, the only guide to heart health you'll ever need. And I have to say, Terry, I do disagree a little bit with Dr. Nissen when it comes to monitoring. We did a show recently on tech and tools and testing, and I think a lot of people want to be much more actively engaged in monitoring their health. Although we can't argue with prudence. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) Prudence is very important. After the break, we're going to find out about something called LP little a. People with a family history of heart disease might need to ask their doctor about this underappreciated risk factor. There are some new drugs under development to lower LPA. Dr. Nissen will tell us about the drug trial he's been supervising. We'll also learn about the prospects for overcoming heart disease in the future. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro, Coco Extract. August is National Wellness Month, which means it's a great time to refocus on self-care and healthy habits. Consider adding clinically proven cocoa flavanols to your daily regimen. Whether you're looking to support your heart health or brain health this summer, you can achieve your goals with Cocovia. All Cocovia supplements contain the number one bioactive flavanols, CocoPro, backed by 20 years of research. These powerful bioactive nutrients are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular health and improve cognitive function as you age. Get 20% off all Cocovia products from August 21st through September 5th using the discount code wellnesspod. That's wellness 
W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-P-O-D, wellnesspod, at cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. This National Wellness Month, you can take care of your heart and brain health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for a strong heart and cognitive support. How can Cocovia be a part of your wellness habits? More information at cocovia.com. When you visit a doctor's office, they'll usually ask about your family health history. If several members of your family have had heart attacks, that dramatically increases your own risk of heart disease. One of the genetic markers that doctors are starting to pay much more attention to is known as lipoprotein A, or LP little a for short. It causes clogged arteries and can also increase the risk for calcification of heart valves. To find out more about this underappreciated risk factor, we're talking with one of the country's leading cardiologists. Dr. Steve Nissen is Chief Academic Officer of the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He holds the Lewis and Patricia Dickey Chair in Cardiovascular Medicine at the Lerner School of Medicine. He's the co-author with Dr. Mark Gilinoff of Heart 411, the only guide to heart health you'll ever need. Dr. Nissen, we have been talking about cholesterol as a risk factor for heart disease. We want to switch gears now. We'd like to talk to you about a heart disease risk factor that has been recognized by the scientific community for a really long time. But most of the rest of us are just now starting to hear about it. And most people have never been tested for something called LP little a, lipoprotein A. What is it? Why are you concerned about it? And then, more importantly, tell us what you've been doing about it? Well, first of all, lipoprotein A is very important. Uh, about 20 to 25% of the global population, that's 1.4 billion people, have elevated levels. It's a cholesterol type of particle that's particularly strongly associated with developing coronary heart disease, stroke, and narrowing of the aortic valve known as aortic stenosis. We've been fighting for decades in finding a way to treat this problem. Statins don't work. Lifestyle changes don't work. Nothing we've tried worked because it's a genetic risk factor. Your genes are the problem. You're making too much of this particle. And the only way to lower levels effectively, is to find a way to turn off the gene. Now, before you go any further on the genes, yeah, this is a situation where if grandpa died at age 58 of a heart attack and dad had a heart attack or two when he was in his 50s 
and Cousin Charlie had three heart attacks, that's a red flag that you might have elevated LPA levels because, as you pointed out, genetic, it runs in families. So if there is a family history of heart disease, should people have their LPA monitored? They should. And every patient that comes to our prevention clinic here at the Cleveland Clinic has their LPA tested. I did a study, 48,000 patients published last year, where of people that had coronary heart disease, only 13% of them had had their LPA level checked at any time in their medical history. So it's under-recognized and it is really important. Why do you think that is? Why under-recognized? We've known about it for decades. It's very simple. When you have something, you have nothing to treat. You can't have no way to treat it. Then people say, well, why should I find out if I can't do anything about it? Now, I happen to think that knowledge is power, and I always want our patients to know what their risk is, but not everybody uh, sees it that way. Well, they're going to have to see it that way because we're on the verge of really powerful new therapies to treat this disorder. Now, before you tell us about clinical trials, and you are involved in a very big one, I've got a boomerang question for you. I got a phone call maybe 20, 30 years ago from a Merck researcher. Now, Merck was involved in developing Mevacor, Lovastatin, the very first statin. And I was super enthusiastic about statins back in the day. And he said, Joe, before you get too excited, you need to know that Mevacor, it does lower LDL cholesterol, but it raises LP little a levels. And one of your colleagues out on the West Coast, Dr. Tsimikas, has actually done a study called Statins and Inconvenient Truth, suggesting that statins can actually raise LP little a levels. Your thoughts? Well, yes, statins do raise LP little a levels a little bit. On average, somewhere between about 7 and 11%. But it turns out that that does not diminish the benefits of statins. If you treat people with a high LP little a with statins, they get the same relative benefit at reducing heart attack, stroke, and death from cardiovascular causes. And so that is not a reason not to take a statin. So tell us about the drugs under development for lowering LP little a. Well, the only way we're going to beat this disease is we've got to do something about the gene. And if you understand genes, you understand that genes make messenger RNA. People have heard a lot about messenger RNA because of the messenger RNA vaccines. And that messenger RNA encodes for a protein. And that protein that's in lipoprotein, little a, is known as ApoA or apolipoprotein A. If you block the production of ApoA, you can prevent the formation of lipoprotein little a. And so these therapies that are now being given are injected. They are taken up by the liver. They get into the liver cells, which is where these LPA particles are being assembled. And they block the messenger RNA that encodes for ApoA. They're amazingly effective. They can lower 
levels by 80 to 98%. Uh, But what we don't know yet is whether lowering those levels will reduce the risk of coronary heart disease. And that's what we're going to try to find out in ongoing trials. And there are now several trials ongoing and more coming soon. I know you are leading at least one of those trials. Can you tell us about it? Yep. It's known as the LPA Horizon trial. It's with a drug that's now been given the name of Pelicarsin. And it's a strategy where it's injected once a month, self-injected by the patient. And we are, we've randomized a large group of people, in this case, 8,300, to either a placebo or this drug called Pelicarsin. Everybody gets treated with the best therapies we currently have available, statins, blood pressure medication, aspirin, whatever it takes, but they either get a placebo or they get Pelicarsin. We will find out in a couple of years when we this trial finishes and we get unblinded, I'm still blinded, whether or not the strategy worked. I am really hoping it works. I have seen so many people where everybody in their families had a heart attack in their 40s, not just 50s, but 40s. A lot of suffering from this disorder. We've not been able to treat it. I think we're on the verge of a breakthrough in our ability to treat this disorder, and I'm very excited about the prospects. In the meantime, if someone listening to us now goes out, gets an LP little a blood test, discovers that their levels are 150 or whatever the marker is where people go, oh, oh, that's nasty. Is there anything they can do? I'm thinking PCSK9 inhibitors. I'm asking about niacin. Are there any strategies before these new drugs become available? Well, I don't think any of the drug strategies make a lot of sense. They don't have enough effectiveness to really make a difference. But here's what we do with these patients. We we sit down and we make sure they understand. And by the way, we make sure they have their children tested and all the other things so we can find everybody else in the family who's got the disorder. And we then try to take every other risk factor off the table. We tell these folks, get your body weight down, get off the couch and exercise, get your LDL cholesterol down to a low level, It's one of the few groups of people where we give aspirin for primary prevention. We do everything we can do to treat the conventional risk factors, diabetes, you know, all of those things. And if you take every other risk factor off the table, you can delay the disease. And we're hoping to delay the disease until we can get a therapy on the market. Dr. Nissen, you just mentioned aspirin, and we've been hearing some very contradictory things about aspirin over the last few years. For a while there, we were told that anyone over middle age should be taking aspirin, low-dose aspirin, to prevent heart attacks. And I think lately they have really backed off that recommendation. Who can benefit from aspirin and what doses are we talking about? Well, many of us backed off about at least 10 years ago, uh, but the evidence is just not there for aspirin in primary prevention. Aspirin is a very effective therapy in secondary prevention. If you had a heart attack or bypass, absolutely, or stent. But in primary prevention, unless your risk 
by the risk calculator that we use is more than about 20% over the next 10 years, then aspirin does about as much harm as good. But one exception is patients with an elevated lipoprotein little a. There is some evidence that it may reduce risk because one of the ways that lipoprotein A causes trouble is it's both atherogenic, meaning it promotes plaques in the coronaries, and it's prothrombotic. It promotes clotting. And aspirin can, in fact, potentially mitigate that risk of clotting. And so we, many of us, treat patients with very high LP little a's with aspirin, but we do not use aspirin in other patients for primary prevention. Now, when we talk about helicarsin or the other drugs that are now being tested to lower LP little a, do we have any idea of what the um, side effect profile might be? Uh, we don't have a, we have a, some idea. I mean, they were studied in phase two in earlier studies, but those studies are not huge. There are a few hundred patients and you can't really establish safety with only a few hundred patients tested. The trial that we're doing, like all trials, and there are other trials going on with other drugs in the same basic class, these trials are blinded. So I don't get to know who's on placebo and who's on drug, but somebody else does. These trials are monitored by a data monitoring committee, sometimes called a data safety and monitoring board. And that board is unblinded. They know who's getting drug and who's getting placebo. And if there is a problem, they can advise us about what measures we might need to take. The trials that are ongoing are being carefully monitored by these data monitoring committees to make sure that patients stay safe. That's the best guarantee we have for now. When the studies are done, it's very important. And you know we feel very strongly that it, you, we have to tell people what the benefits are, we have to tell people what the risks are so that they can make an informed decision with their physician about whether one of these new drugs is right for them. We call that, and I know you're advocates of this, shared decision-making. And you can only do shared decision-making if you have all the facts. Well, speaking of shared decision-making, you were one of the early warning health professionals about a drug called Vioxx. Yes. And one of the complications of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, like ibuprofen, like naproxen, and there are half a dozen more, is an increased risk in heart attacks. We only have a couple minutes left, but we've been talking about things that people can do to reduce their risk of having a blood clot, having a heart attack. Can you give us some perspective on NSAIDs? Because tens of millions of people take an NSAID every day without thinking twice about complications. Well, I published a few years ago a study we did, 24,000 patients that studied three different NSAIDs. Most of us believe that the NSAIDs do create a slight increased risk of heart attack and stroke. They certainly do raise blood pressure, and some of them more than others. But they have benefits. And again, it's a benefit-risk discussion. If you've got terrible arthritic pain and you just can't get around, then it might be worth it. 
Uh, but if you have minor pains, maybe you're better off, better off taking acetaminophen, which doesn't seem to have that risk. But this is a class of drugs that has benefits and risks, and you have to understand them. And by the way, one of the risks is worsening kidney function. People need to be aware of that as well. So I think it's always about understanding what are the benefits, what are the risks, and what makes the most sense for me. And that's a decision people should have with their physician in an informed way so that they can jointly make a decision about what's the right thing to do. And in the minute we have left, Dr. Nissen, your view of cardiology and heart disease moving forward, it sounds like you're optimistic. Oh, we have so much more to do. And it's not just LP little a, we have all kinds of other potential targets, ways to attack this disease. One of the most important we didn't talk about today are new anti-obesity medications. I am uh, leading a 15,000 patient trial of a drug known as terzepatide, which is a cardiovascular outcome trial to find out if weight loss can reduce the risk of heart-related events. So very excited about the future and about many potential ways we can help patients. Dr. Steve Nissen, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. It's been a pleasure to be with you. You've been listening to Dr. Steve Nissen, Chief Academic Officer of the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Nissen holds the Lewis and Patricia Dickey Chair in Cardiovascular Medicine at the Lerner School of Medicine. He's the co-author with Dr. Mark Gilinoff of Heart 411, the only guide to heart health you'll ever need. Dr. Nissen has supervised many clinical trials and is currently studying new drugs to lower lipoprotein A. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wodarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. During this National Wellness Month, you can take care of your heart and brain health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for a strong heart and cognitive support. How can Cocovia be a part of your wellness habits? More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,353. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast, so you can find out ahead of time what topics we're covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. 
But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.